0: Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So we are still in Matthew 18. We'll be finishing up today. Uh, so turn in your Bibles there. We we read it two Sundays in a row, I think, or parts of it, two Sundays in a row. Last week, uh, Chuck read the whole thing. And... Um, I covered the first 14 verses last week. Um, What I want you to notice is that the whole chapter is dealing with how we handle it when someone else offends us. So the first part is talking about um, how people interact with children and how we handle stumbling blocks. And then the church discipline section is in the middle of that, which is about how you handle it when a brother or sister in in the church offends you, uh, sins against you is the actual word in Scripture. And then the last part is a parable about forgiveness. So um, we're going to work our way through the last half of it. Just to review from last week, I talked about the the Greek word scandalon that is translated offenses or stumbling blocks throughout uh, the first 14 verses of the chapter. And the actual scandal on is, is the trap stick in a trap box. This picture is something I got online of uh, people trying to catch a squirrel, and they had birds in there at first. And they actually catch a squirrel at the end. But um, it implies an enemy. It's not an innocent sort of stumbling block like you trip on a root or something. This, in in, in this passage, when you read it and you see the word offenses or or offended, that sort of thing, or depending on your translation, it might actually say stumbling block. It's implying, um, it means that an enemy is trying to take you down. Someone's setting a trap. Uh, And so we talked some uh, near the end last week about how to avoid becoming a stumbling block for children. I had given a list of stumbling blocks and these things came out of uh, verse 6 and verse 10 and the middle one comes out of one of the things that was on the list of stumbling blocks. So just to go through those real quick, being the opposite of a stumbling block that's trying to take down a child... Oh. And I forgot to point that out. Last week, I made a, a big deal about how this whole first 14 verses is really in the context of Jesus talking about children. And you see that in, um, in verses 8. No, not 8. In verse, uh, Partway through the passage, in verse 10, he comes back to children. Take he, Jesus does. "...take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones." And at the end of of that section in verse 14, he says, "...even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." So another thing that I said last week is throughout uh, chapter 18, there are several verses you're going to recognize that you may have memorized, and we Christians commonly use them in a more general sense than the context that Jesus is using them in Matthew 18. And I think it is legitimate where we use them in a general sense because there are other verses in Scripture and sometimes other cases where Jesus says the same, uses the same words where it's a different context. So that's okay. But I wanted you to realize, and I want you to realize today as we go into the rest of it, that the actual context in the first 14 verses, he's talking about stumbling blocks that impact children. Um, So the first application was help them stay on their feet. Do the opposite of trying to knock them off their feet. Try to help them stay on their feet. And I, was, I gave you last week the verse in Acts where Barnabas goes to the church in Antioch and he sees how God is working in their midst and Scripture says that he starts with resolute heart to exhort them to stay true to the Lord. So, trying to exhort people whether children or not, to stay true to the Lord is being the opposite of a stumbling block. Um, the second one, be the real deal in your walk with God. I, to- I told you last week about how a, sur- a Barna Group survey in 2017 had said that of several reasons why millennials that grow up in a church leave the church and sort of abandon their, their faith uh, after they're out of the home, what, the number one reason is a view that the church is fake or that their parents have been fake. And so an opposite of that is be the real deal in your walk with God. If you are claiming to be a follower of Christ, truly follow Him. If you claim that His Word's important, spend some time reading it. One of the examples I gave last week was of a parent who wants the family to look good, spiritual, takes them to church, they do the church thing, But the kids grow up knowing that dad or mom never reads the Bible at home, never prays, and they come away as they're growing up with a sense that this is fake. My dad's fake. My mom's fake. Don't be fake. Be the real deal. Pursue the Lord. If you're pursuing the Lord, not only is that fundamentally good for you, but it has a spin-off effect with those around you because they will see that you are a genuine Lover of, the, of Christ. Last one was don't despise children. That came out of verse 10, which uh, I, I mentioned it earlier. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Despise means to think lightly of, to think little of them. A major point when you keep in mind the context as you read through the first 14 verses is that God highly values children. We should do the same. Okay, so... We ended with the lost sheep illustration, and, and I was saying, claiming last week, that as this flows through, Jesus has talked about uh, stumbling blocks. He's talked some about how important it is to not stumble. That's in verses 8 and 9. And then he gets to this parable where I believe he's saying, here's the heart of God towards someone who does stumble, someone who's fallen away. And, and, um, and so I, I don't think I mentioned this this morning, but last week I also talked about how the stumbling is in the context of believing in Christ. You go all the way back to um, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and that word is also actually tied in with stumble. Um, The context is about people falling away from their belief in Christ, from their view of Christ, having it become distorted, uh, weakened. And uh, so that's going to happen to people. Jesus said that stumbling blocks are inevitable. Woe to the one who causes someone to stumble. So this parable is about those who have stumbled, They've gone astray. They've left the shepherd. And the point is that Christ loves every one of his sheep. And a, a good shepherd goes and seeks his lost sheep, tries to find it and save it, and so does our Father in heaven for those who go astray. So he ends in verse 14, Even so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We can generalize this to all of us, Based on Scripture, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the, of the truth. So, that's where we ended last week. And, um, and so, the next section is about the brother who sins against us. We call this church discipline because of what Jesus is going to say in the middle of it. Let me get to the passage. So we're in Matthew 18. Since we did not read it this morning, let me read it to you real quick. Starting in verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you... He's been talking about children. Now he's moving to adults. Okay? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear... "...take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So in 15 through 17, Jesus is describing the process that he wants us to follow if you believe that a brother or sister has sinned against you. And so you have taken offense at someone who's a follower of Christ. The, the context by the way, or I'm, I'm saying the the, the, that this is about people who are followers of Christ, is because of how in verse 17, Jesus refers to the church as the last step in the process. Um, prior to this, the, the first time in Scripture that Jesus mentions the church is actually in Matthew 15. So that's been a few chapters before this. And it's when he talks about um, uh, on, on, on this rock big rock, he's talking to Peter, you're Petra, little Petra, little rock, Petrus, I, I may be getting the words mixed up, but there's a Greek word for little rock and a Greek word for big, huge rock. Little rock, you, Peter, on this big, huge rock, the faith you've just expressed in saying that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, on this faith, big rock, I will build my church. That word church... Uh, in the Greek is actually a very common word that they use in their society for an assembly, for a group that gathers with a common purpose. So like if in a village, the town adults turn out and think Greek democratic society, they turn out to discuss some civic matter and have a vote. Well, that's an assembly of voters, of people that have that in common to make a decision. Jesus uses that word in Matthew 15 and then here in Matthew 18 to talk about his followers. And this is where really the start of the concept of the church begins. We then see it obviously fleshed out in Acts and in the rest of the writings uh, of the New Testament. So the process, you think someone sinned against you, you go to the one who sinned against you in private. That's the first step. You don't go around to other people. You go to the one who sinned against you. If that doesn't work, and I'll talk about what it means to work in a minute, but if that doesn't work, then you go again, but this time you take two or three other witnesses. Now that's in verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. You really can take this two ways. They might be witnesses of the sin against you, But they also might not have witnessed that. They might become witnesses of the conversation that you have with the person. And the reason that matters and is a very plausible interpretation is because of what comes next, which is the third step. If the brother still doesn't listen to you, then you involve the church. And then those people who went with you would be witnesses about what the conversation was and how it all went. Um, So... This is very important to realize the goal is not it's not really to discipline someone in the church. That is an unfortunate consequence of the end of the process if the process doesn't succeed. But the goal that we're trying to succeed in is restoration and reconciliation. Jesus says in verse 15, If he hears you, you have gained your brother. And there's several reasons why... We want that goal. Number one is if you're perceiving that he sinned against you. um, Yeah, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, then there is a disruption in your relationship. Sin causes separation. It's fundamentally why we need a Savior because sin separates us from our God. Sin separates individuals too in our relationships. And so you want that to be healed. That seems obvious that you want your relationship restored but beyond that there's three other reasons why you want restoration and reconciliation that don't actually have to do with you the one who goes trying to win the brother one is that you want him in fellowship with Christ that's for his good a second one is you don't even want it, you don't want him to be a stumbling block for others that's what the first 14 verses were about well part of those verses were about stumbling blocks so if, if someone in the church has sinned against you and they're unrepentant against it and are on a path to continuing that thing, whatever it is, towards you and other people, well, that can be a stumbling block for people. And then the third reason is we're called to be a holy people. In First um, Peter 1, verse uh, 13, and six, 13 through 16. Let me get there real quick. Peter, writing to um, the various churches that have been scattered around um, the Mediterranean area, he says in 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So three things. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind ready for action. Be sober. You're not being lazy-minded. You're not sleeping like a a guard that's supposed to be on watch, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you. So that hope, what you're fixing your hope on is the third thing. Then he says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy." I'm not going to read to you the chapter 2, verse 9 verse, but that one he talks about us being a holy people, uh, chosen people of God. So we have a number of reasons why we want restoration with our brother. By the way, Scripture is using brother, but this applies to anyone in in the church. So brother, sister, anyone that is your, your fellow believer in Christ that you have an issue with, this is the proper process to go through. Now, let's see. What do I have next? Binding and loosing. Before we get to binding and loosing, um, Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses even to hear the church, so he's refused to hear you, that could be he he's denying that he did it, which is where witnesses that actually know that he's committed the sin could factor in. But it can also mean he's just unrepentant. I think that tends to be the predominant meaning here, and I'm going to show you a passage in a minute that is an example of this that sort of substantiates that. But he's three times, the person has three times not heard you, meaning that he's not agreeing with you. He's not going to change, refusing to change. So uh, the goal is still restoration and reconciliation, even when Jesus says in verse 17, Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, when we think about that, he's using terms that for the Jews, those would be people they don't want to associate with. But when you look at Christ, who's the one saying to let him be that way toward you, Jesus had a tax collector that became one of his disciples. Changed his life. He specifically called Zacchaeus down from a tree, went to meet with him in his home, he was a tax collector, and salvation came to that house that day. The heathen represents people that are just totally going away from the revealed truth of God. For the Jews, this would be uh, it. Very much would include um, when they talk about prostitutes and sexually immoral, and and then others that are just totally flouting the Jewish law. And we have examples there of Christ changing the lives of such people, refusing to throw the stone and condemn the woman caught in adultery, but rather tells her, go and sin no more. He says, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. So when we treat them as... I'm pointing there, but it's not up there. In verse 17, "...let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector." This does not mean that you're being hard of heart toward that person. And and so at this point, we've got to go look at at a few other verses just to flesh this out. So uh, turn in your Bibles with me to, um, or on your smartphones, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, this is a passage that uh, many of you are probably familiar with. It starts with Paul talking to the Corinthians really strongly about someone in their church who has been caught up in gross immorality where Paul says it's of a sort that not even the non-believers put up with. And if you go to verse 9... He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. He's referring to a prior letter. I guess we would call that zero Corinthians. Start counting with zero. That's a letter that we don't have. God in his wisdom didn't deem that letter as one to preserve as part of Scripture. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So I point back to what I said about Christ's example. He was trying to change those in the world and reached out to tax collectors, reached out to the immoral, sexually immoral of of their world. Uh, So Paul's re re reemphasizing that. I didn't mean the immoral people of this world, because you'd have to go out of the world. We're not called to be out of the world. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? Verse 11, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Okay, so the so-called believer, the one posing as a believer in our midst. And then continuing, if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I believe that in this context, he means someone who's got an ongoing behavior type, one of these things. They're unrepentant. Paul already knows about this process because Jesus had already taught it to the disciples and they had passed it on. And so he's talking about someone who's in one of those things in a repentant, not going to listen to you type of mode. Uh, Verse 12, For what have I... So At the end, he says, not even to eat with such a one. I believe what he's meaning is you cut them off from the Christian fellowship of the church, the richness of the things the church does. But he has already said that he doesn't mean that you not associate with immoral people. So you're now treating that person the way you would treat the unsaved person in the world who's never been part of your church. That doesn't mean you don't associate with them at all, but you're associating with them in the way of a non-believer. Where the goal, again, is restoration. He says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, this is important. Paul has quoted from Deuteronomy. So I'm going to go over to Deuteronomy. This phrase is actually occurs in several places in Deuteronomy, but the first one is Deuteronomy 13, and all of the occurrences have in common the nature of what we see in De- Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, the context starting in verse 1 is about false prophets, people who come and and are trying to lead you to follow other gods verse 2 says that they're saying let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them and he goes down in verse 4 he says you shall not follow the lord your god and you shall follow the lord your god and fear him you shall keep his commandments listen to his voice serve him and cling to him verse 5 is the key verse but before I get to it I want to reemphasize all the occurrences in Deuteronomy that are the phrase that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, they have in, in common that the issue that God says, remove the wicked person from your midst. And by the way, in their case, it means stoning them to remove them from their midst. That's not what Paul means in the New Testament sense, but he means removing them from your church. Verse 5, he says, uh, God says um, through Moses, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So in the context, in Deuteronomy 13, it's someone who is sharing something they're claiming they heard from God as a means to mislead you away from the true God, to follow false gods. That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. And here's the phrase. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. Or put away the evil one from your midst. So when Paul is quoting that, he's talking, the Old Testament quote is in the context of stumbling blocks people that would cause you or someone in the church to go astray in following the Lord. That's why it's important that we deal with with the uh, unrepentant sins because of how that could have an impact on others. And if you think about that, if a church knows of open, clearly sin-type situations and turns a blind eye, the message being sent is we're going to accept that. And then that could lead others to think, okay, that's okay. Church is fine with that. I can do it too. Another blind eye, it's mushrooming. We have, I'm not going to go there, but you know of verses that Jesus talks about, uh, a little leaven, you know, leavens the whole lump. Uh, Paul, Paul uses that. Jesus actually uses that once in a positive way, talking about the kingdom of heaven. But Paul uses that a couple of times in a negative way of removing that leaven. Okay, enough said on that. The last verse I want to show you on this is in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2. So turn there. And this is where, having sent that letter, the Corinthians have dealt with the situation. And they've put the person out of the church. And Paul comes back to that topic, and this is very important. Second Corinthians chapter 2, starting with verse 5, Paul says, But if any has caused sorrow, and I think he's talking about the person that they had to deal with, because this is a hard situation to go through this process with someone who's been part of your group, and you love them, you care for them. And then ultimately to have to start treating them like a heathen and a tax collector, um, that's very hard and difficult. Paul says, verse 5, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. I I think when Paul is sort of parenthetically saying in order not to say too much, it's sort of like I'm writing this letter to the whole church. I'm not going to name names. But you know who I'm talking about because you guys are the ones that we just dealt with this in the past letter. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. That was the withdrawing of fellowship from the person. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven any, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So, what I want you to see, and there's a real example in the New Testament of what's being talked about here. And it didn't go well. It went all the way down to where they had to put the person out. But then it ultimately did go well, because apparently the person repented. And Paul's writing to them, don't don't mistake what I said before. If they're repenting, love them and welcome them back in. So the goal is the, re- is the restoration. Okay. Um, all right. On the binding and loosing, Jesus says in verse... 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a verse that's sometimes lifted up and we use it apart from the context. And I think, depending on how you're using it, that can be okay in the spirit of the rest of what Scripture teaches. But I want you to notice the context is still dealing with the person in the church. Um, (laughs) Binding and loosing for the Jew of Jesus' day was an administrative term that had to do with the Old Testament law and with their priest. If someone came up against the law in something, they'd go to the priest, and the priest would either would render a judgment on it, or the rabbis, the rabbis did a lot of this, interpreting what the different laws really meant in different real-life situations. And so they would bind that thing, or the person in regard to that thing, or loose them. Bind meant to forbid it, Loose meant to allow it. And what Jesus is saying here basically is that his disciples are going to have the authority to bind and loose as the New Testament church grows. This is really a basis for us uh, looking to the authority of the apostles and what they taught and what they wrote. And ultimately, it's sort of a derivative um, the, the, the New Testament being authoritative word of God because he's, he's telling them, you're not going to go to the rabbi. That, this would be a term. They would think of this in terms of the rabbis or the priests. And he's telling them um, that you make that decision as the church. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, similar to the next verse where he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it should be done for you by my Father in heaven. We have the rest of Scripture to gather things together in understanding what all of this means. I don't think that you can bind or loose something that's out of the will of God and expect God to follow through on that. Um, Do I have it here? um, Spurgeon had a really good quote, and I don't have it at my fingertips, but he basically said that that, in, that that Jesus is telling the church that what the, what the church down here uh, locks or unlocks with the keys in the spirit of what the Father wants, the, the heaven itself will then seal it. Something like that. I botched that, but it was to that effect. Um, so there is a real-life example I want to give you of this, of what the rabbis had done sometime between the time of Malachi and uh, Jesus' day. In the Old Testament, there were rules about um, ritual uncleanness, what made something clean or unclean. And there's a bunch of stuff you can go read, I think, in Leviticus about a house being clean or unclean. They have stuff about garments, all kinds of things. So if you touched a dead body, you'd be unclean for a certain period of time. There were things you had to do to become ritually clean so you could again go into the temple and or in the tabernacle at the time. That was written later for the temple. And so it had come up, what happens, how many have a dog? How many of you have a a dog? Okay, so lots of you have a dog. How many of you have a dog that you let live in your house? Almost everybody who has a dog. So um, this really came up. What if my dog dies? Is my house unclean? And the rabbi ruled if the dog dies in your house, your house is unclean. You've got to go through the process to cleanse the house. If the dog dies outside the house, your house is clean. Well, what if my dog dies on the porch, on the threshold of my house? And the ruling by the rabbi was, if the dog dies with his nose pointed toward the door, your house is unclean. But if he dies with his nose pointed away from the door, your house is clean. Real-world thing. That is written down in some of the Jewish writings of the time. So that's an example of binding and loosing. The key thing I want you to note here is Jesus is taking that context and saying, that's not how we're going to do it. This is going to be my church, my assembly, my group of people who have me in common, and you, the church, are going to make these decisions. You don't go to the rabbi. You don't go to the priest. Okay, um, verse 19, again, context. He says, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in His heaven. I'm in heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Great verses that we use and pray in all kinds of situations, like two or three of us coming together uh, to pray together. Coming to, when we come together as a church, if we're real thin on a given night, you know, or two or three are gathered in his name, he's there with us. I think that's perfectly valid to use it that way because of other things in the New Testament. But in the context here, he's still talking about the brother who has sinned against you. And it's hard not to connect this. He said, "Take two or three witnesses with you just a couple of verses earlier. And now he says, "If two of you pray about anything, and then in verse 20, where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. I think he's driving home that you need you two or three, you need to be praying for that brother that you're trying to restore, and I'm there with you as you're trying to bring about that restoration. That's the direct meaning of what he's teaching here. All right. So, now, after all that ordeal of you having to listen to me talk about those few verses, you have to agree with me that that's not an easy thing to do. And by the way, that's why most people don't do it. Most people don't follow the biblical model. So, it's very logical for Peter to then say in verse 21. Keep it in context. Peter says, Then Peter said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Do you see the richness of this? Man, if I have to go through that every time, I don't want to do that. How many times? How many times must I go through that to forgive him? And... The answer, as you know, is 490. But what that really means is stop counting. Just forgive. It's more than you're going to keep track of. You just need to forgive. Follow the process. So then Jesus, though, he's given the simple answer, but he says in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And then he gives this wonderful, rich parable. Now, when a parable is given, there's usually one or two key meanings that the Lord's trying to get across. Sometimes there can be a whole bunch of different things you can draw out of it. But there's always one or two key meanings. A parable is given to teach a central truth. So more than anything, we want to make sure we catch that truth. So we have not read this parable today, so I'm going to take the time... We're, I think we'll just kind of read, read through it as I go through these points. Uh, he says in verse 24, uh, 23, So that a certain king wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, uh, I call this the parable of the unforgiving servant. You, you could call it several different names. But 10,000 talents is just an impossible amount to repay. Um, does anybody here know how much a talent was worth? Actually, let's start with something else. Does anybody here know how much a denarius was worth? From a day's wages, yeah. So technically, it meant a day's wages for like a day laborer. And we have parables where someone's paid a denarius where they were brought in for a day to work in a vineyard. But think of it in terms of your day's wage, whatever you make. That'd be a denarius. A a talent, anybody know what a talent was? A talent was actually, so it's actually a lot more than that. A talent was their largest denomination of wealth. It wasn't like a bill you could easily transfer. It was a, a, a weight that, that scholars believe was equivalent to about 75 pounds of something. And most of the time, they would talk, the, 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 the highest level measure of wealth w- would be a talent of gold, because it was the most valuable uh, quantity or the item that they had then. So 75 pounds of gold, that would be a whole lot. The common day laborer who's being paid a denarius a day is never going to see in his own possession, a talent of gold, unless someone who's wealthy gives that to him. Um, And so here, when he says 10,000 talents, um, the the scholars believe this would have been equivalent to to close to like $100 million in their day. (laughs) Just a huge amount of money. So the point is, it's an impossible amount to repay. There's no way that the servant's going to be able to repay it. But look at verse 25. He was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. Basically, that's a sentence of condemnation uh, forever because if he and his wife and children are all sold and... Payments made from... Well, I got ahead of myself. let to just stand at what it is. He, he'd be sold with his wife and children all that he had, and that payment be made. That wouldn't have been enough to pay back the debt. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all the... Ba-. He's pleading for, for his and his family's lives. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Uh... The king is moved with compassion um, and decides to forgive him. Now, now I'll let that go too. So verse 28, but that servant went out and found... uh, No, here we go. Yeah. So you have to think here at this point before you go further in the parable. Have you been forgiven an impossible debt? Has anybody here been forgiven an impossible debt? Anybody want to shout out what that impossible debt was? Huh, what? Our sin. Our sin. Yeah, so in Jesus' the richness of this parable, we can't help but escape uh, thinking of our own situation where we've not only sinned once, if we're honest and think about it, we've all sinned a whole bunch of times. We've accrued a record of being an outlaw based on God's law, and he is a rightful judge, going to settle accounts at some point. And so, this, this guy here is like, it's hard not to think he's like us, in being forgiven of our sin. He's being forgiven of an impossible debt. But what does he do in verse 28? That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. So now, this is not a light amount. Denarius is a day's wage. So think of how much you make. If you're a stay-at-home mom, think of how much the family makes through your husband. But think think of the last time you worked a job. What's a day's wage? Think of 100 days of that. For most people, you throw in weekends where you're not working. That's a third of your annual salary. Right there. So it's not a pittance, but it's not on the scale of that 10,000 talents. That servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. Now think about this. He's just been forgiven by the king. It's not like he needs that money to go pay the king, it wouldn't have been enough anyway. So he has failed to learn a lesson from the compassion of the king. His fellows, verse 29, his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Highly ironic, because that's the words the first servant had just been using with the king. Verse 30, and he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. This, if you were in that story and saw that play out, it would violate all of your sense of fairness, right? This is just not right at all. And so they come and tell the king, and in verse 32, his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. This is an impossible way to pay. Delivering him to the torturers is basically permanent condemnation. This is actually like the third or fourth time Jesus has referred either directly or indirectly to hell. Uh, directly in verses, I think it was 8 and 9, when he talked about uh, the fiery hell and the fiery judgment, uh, indirectly in verse 6 when he talked about uh, if you if you are the one who causes someone to stumble, it's better for you to be drowned than dot, 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 fill in the blank. What's he talking about? Well, in verse 8 and 9, he talks about the fiery judgment. Uh, when he delivers him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him, there's no way he can make any money. He's in jail. He's being It's really not jail. This is really the word for like a dungeon. In the dungeon, uh, the dank basement part of a prison, being tortured. He can't go work. He's not going to be able to make money. He's never going to be able to get out of the situation. This is comparable to eternal condemnation. And... I guess I have to pause here. What do I got coming next? Um, yeah, I'll get to that in a minute. I have to pause here in part because of of your testimony, Tammy. I, I'm thinking, I was thinking while you shared about the compassion you felt for that chick, and you're being brutally honest talking about how Uh, You don't feel that same grief and sense of loss, using my words from what you said, but you don't feel that same thing in the pit of your stomach the way you do over your own sin and other people's. And what I was thinking at the time was of the end of Jonah, when Jonah wants to see Nineveh wiped out. And he goes and sits in the sun, and God makes the plant grow up, and then the worm attacks the plant, and the plant falls, you know, down. And and Jonah says, "Yes." Jesus, God says, "Do you have right to be upset about the plant?" Yes, I have right to be upset about the plant. He's in the same thing, like you were for the chick. He's looking at the city, wanting it to be wiped out, which you weren't doing. You know, I'm I'm branching off a little bit here, but he's looking at the whole city, wanting them to be wiped out, and. What he cares about is this plan. And here we have a similar kind of thing where the king says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. You asked. Which we could connect to some other verses. Ask for forgiveness. Today is the day of salvation. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We have to ask. But that's a different topic. But you begged me, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? As I, the king, had pity on you, shouldn't you be that way towards this other guy? Now, that's the parable. And then we get to verse 35, which you have on the screen. Now Jesus is out of the parable, talking directly to his disciples... Here's the point. Peter, you asked, how many times should I forgive? Verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Uh, We have this in other passages in Matthew 6 at the end of the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer when he gives a model prayer for his disciples. He says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I lifted this out of the context. I told you the context was he had just given the model prayer. It's significant that this is, the only, this is not the prayer. This is after he said the model prayer. The only thing in the model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, that Jesus revisits, is the part about forgiveness. So this is a stern warning to us who have been forgiven an impossible debt by our God. Oh, here's another one. Uh, This is sort of in a positive spin. Colossians 3, Paul says, uh, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. This whole chapter is about how we deal with offenses. We don't want to be stumbling blocks that cause offenses. We don't want to stumble over stumbling blocks. We want to go help the ones who do stumble, and that's where 15 through 20 comes in trying to restore your brother or sister who's caught up in a sin. The specific words were they sinned against you. And then this parable, we are to forgive over and over and over again. And we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. So, for each of you, um, I'm going to leave it to you to think through that some more. I do want to say a couple of caveats and then we're going to be done here. Um, In the context of 15 to 20 and the verses I read to you in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the person is restored when they repent from the sin, right? The separation from the church is meant to encourage them to finally repent. So forgiving over and over again doesn't mean that you're forgiving without them repenting. Okay. Now, there's a lot that could be said there where there's room to forgive someone who doesn't repent. I'm not going to go into that. I don't have time. But this context here is about the person who repents. How many times, Peter says, do I have to do this? It was all about a process that leads to repentance. And in the parable itself, each of the servants is repentant. Give me time and I will pay back all of what's due. They both say that. The king withdraws the forgiveness of debt and casts that first servant into the torture chamber because he won't forgive the second servant the way the king forgave him. And Jesus bluntly makes the lesson clear. We need to forgive as we've been forgiven. So you, so, a couple thoughts on this. You can fill this in yourself for you better than I can. I'll tell you a couple things that are true for me. Jesus forgives me when I asked for forgiveness. He works, and I'm taught in Scripture, He works to change me. I need to want to change. But He's the one that actually gives me freedom from sin. I was a slave to sin before He entered my life. Jesus forgives me in a way where he doesn't really keep bringing up that sin months, years later. He brings up new ones. <laughs> he, he's working in me to conform me to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. Conform me to the image of Christ. He's changing my character. So he's, it's not like there's not sin he needs to change. He reminds me of things from the past if I'm committing the same thing again sometimes because he's telling me, look, y- y- you got to stop this. But he doesn't... How um, do I want to say it. When he's forgiven, he's forgiven. So I, I, I shared this. I don't know if it was in church or at a, at a um, men's breakfast... I don't really know how God does it, but it's an example for us. The God who knows all things, and so he knows every every sin you have ever committed, every sin I've ever committed, after he forgives us, he still knows all that. He knows all things, so he hasn't forgotten it. But somehow Psalm 103 tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The way Jesus forgives me, he still knows all the things I've done. But in his love, somehow, he doesn't just keep bringing that up. He's carrying me to a new destination. He's bringing up other things that are getting in the way, but it's all working in in me to make me like him. Now, I've shared with you a couple things I relate to. Ask, and he forgives. And there is a desire to change, and he forgives. If I ask, and I know in my heart I'm just doing lip service, <laughs> he knows that. And he'll be telling me, the spirit somewhere I'm pointing to my head, wherever the spirits, his spirit's interacting with my spirit, he's going to say, you're being fake. I know you don't mean it. There's no forgiveness there. But when I'm sincere of heart, he forgives. You can fill this in. You know how you've been forgiven by Christ. That's how you're supposed to forgive your husband, your wife, your children, your co-workers, people in your church. I say co-workers in the context, this is about fellow believers, Okay. But you can forgive non-believers too. Non-believers, even though they don't have Christ in them, can feel guilt. They do feel guilt. Many of you may have come to Christ because you felt guilt and shame, and that led you to want a Savior. They can feel guilt and shame over something they did, and they may not be looking for a Savior yet. They're not at that point, but they know the relationship got messed up, and they may come and say, I'm sorry. You can forgive them too. Okay, I'm going to stop. Let me close this in prayer and then we'll sing a hymn. Father, thank you for uh, giving us a Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for how much you richly love us through Christ, removing our sins as far as the East is from the West and putting your Holy Spirit in us as a seal of your ownership. Father, I don't know how you never bring those things up again when you forgive, because you know them. You haven't forgotten. But you do it. Lord, please give us your power to be that way towards each other, that we will forgive others as you have forgiven us. And help us, Lord, even though it seems hard, to follow the process you've outlined, seeking reconciliation with one another, for each other's good and for your glory through your church. Help us not to be cowards. Help us not to take the easy way out when we know we need to talk to someone. But, Lord, help us also not to want to sin against our brothers and sisters, not to want to be a stumbling block. Help us, Lord, to want all of us to grow together as your body to the fullness and maturity that you want us to have in Jesus And it's in His name I pray. Amen.